The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach to health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm Dr. Taylor Martin. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you. It is nice. I was going to say uh, this is our guest, Dr. Taylor Martin, but I guess you're not a guest because uh, you are our colleague here at Gillette Health. Yeah, excited to be seeing patients now in, in Los Angeles and in the whole California area. So some of our listeners might be familiar with you because uh, you've done podcasts with James before. Um, but for those who don't know, um, how about a quick intro, I guess, uh, why you're in this room chatting with me right now? All right. Well, um, I'm a preventive medicine physician. I did my training at, at Johns Hopkins, where I also did a, a master's of public health. Um, I'm really passionate about providing high quality care to patients. Um, and that's why I got connected with Gillette Health. Perfect. Um, a common question about uh, preventive medicine specialty is, I guess, other than develop treatment algorithms so that people can be algorithm robots. Um, what does preventive medicine do? Uh, why would a health optimization clinic like this even care about preventive medicine? Because we just want to do fancy stuff like peptides, right? <laughs> Not exactly. Preventive medicine, I think, is the, the foundation for health optimization. I think of preventive medicine as being focused on preventing disease from occurring. And so I think about that in the three buckets of prevention. So, so primary prevention, preventing disease from happening in the first place. Uh, we can use a colon cancer as an example. So eating high amounts of fiber, uh, decreasing the alcohol you drink, stuff like that. Uh, secondary prevention, which would be identifying the disease as early as possible. So cancer screening, getting a colonoscopy or a fit test. You talk to your doctor about which one is best for you. And then tertiary prevention, uh, uh, preventing that disease from causing end organ failure and ultimately causing uh, mortality and death. Uh, so for colon cancer, it would be sending you to the surgeon uh, to get a resection of that cancer. That's a good summary. Maybe not as sexy to talk about as uh, things like hormone optimization or fertility or peptides, but certainly necessary. One analogy we like to make is before you put a turbocharger or nitrous on your supercar, then you probably want to make sure that you rotate the tires and get the oil changed and interventions like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you'd be wanting to add a lot of those interventions on if you weren't covering um kind of the, the foundation or the, or the basics. If you uh, have your testosterone optimized, but you're not taking care of your cardiovascular health mm -hmm. or your metabolic health, uh, you're still gonna have uh, a poor body composition and a, and a hard time later in life. Um, so it's really important to combine those together. Certainly. And that's, uh, I guess, a good segue to say, um, you know, you work at a health optimization clinic completely outside what you would consider the traditional 
medicine sphere. And then you also work in academia. You've been at Johns Hopkins. You've been at UCLA, well-credentialed academic centers with good repute. Um, I guess, uh, how do you find the balance between working in what you would think is uh, the antithesis of each other? And um, oh, do you enjoy one more than another? Like, where's the balance there? I enjoy both uh, equally so. And I think uh, my experience on either one of them benefits the other. Um, I am really thankful to be part of Gillette Health and uh, be able to do the type of care that we provide now. That's kind of one frustration that I've ran into in the, the large academic systems is everything is constrained by insurance um, as well as quality metrics. Um, insurance is moving into a value-based care uh, system where they're going to be paying for outcomes. But right now, that's not the case. They're right now paying for process measures. Mm -hmm. um, so how often are you screening for colon cancer? How often are you getting your mammogram? Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is all focused on kind of cookie cutter ways of providing care. Um, and I think that's good from a population aspect. But when it comes to an individual, it's a little frustrating um, when I'm trying to provide the best care to that individual patient in front of me. Um, yep. That's why I really enjoyed being able to kind of get out of that system and, and work with Gillette Health uh, to provide really high quality care that's really uh, focused on, on the patient uh, and their medical history and their priorities. When people hear this buzzword outcomes, what does that mean? Because, you know, there's some outcomes that you're looking at in literature, like MACE. MACE is probably a decent outcome to look at for a lot of individuals. It always concerns me a little bit, and perhaps it should concern the public as well, um, what outcomes will be looked at and over what period of time. For example, are they looking at 10 years or 30 years? Because I think about the classic example of, um, or classic examples of ASC, ASCVD prevention and cancer prevention. And if you're doing something to increase the incidence of this, um, let's just use, uh, you know, use, utilizing a lot of synthetic androgens for decades and its cardiovascular risk outcome, um, you might not have any signs or symptoms of that for three or four decades. Or let's say you're using BPC-157 continuously, again, for three decades, um, you know, if you use it from age 25 to age 55, you're probably not going to develop cancer in that time. You might, but how do they, uh, how do you look at an outcome that might be insidious in onset or not be seen for many decades? Well, I think it is bringing up a good point. It's really important to use short and long-term outcomes and, and use uh, broad outcomes as well as very narrow organ-specific outcomes and using those together to get a really good perspective um, on the intervention. So. You know, my one of my favorite outcomes to look at is all-cause mortality, which is really the heavy hitter. If you can yeah. uh, provide an intervention that changes the all-cause mortality, so giving you uh, a statin that might decrease your all-cause mortality, that's decreasing your risk of even dying from a car crash, because mm -hmm. things that are completely unrelated. So if it can decrease your all-cause mortality, that's a pretty good sign it's going to be efficacious mm -hmm. for uh, improving your, your lifespan and your health span. Mm -hmm. I would also pair that though with a cardiovascular, probably multiple cardiovascular yeah. uh, outcomes because likely if it has an impact on all-cause mortality, it'll have an even higher outcome on uh, impact on a cardiovascular outcome, which is where that statin majority is working. Yeah. I had a friend and I can't remember which one it was. I believe it was an MSL that described all-cause mortality as the holy grail 
of outcomes-based care. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's really hard to in- decrease your, your all-cause mortality. If you have a statistically significant impact on your all-cause mortality, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big headline and, and, and draws a lot of eyes. Yeah, I guess that's a, a good segue into uh, like how preventive medicine interacts with family medicine and obesity medicine. People are pretty familiar, at least the listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with the obesity epidemic and how the CDC does consider it an epidemic. Often people in the health optimization community say obesity should be treated as a disease and it actually is considered a disease and obesity should be considered an, an epidemic and, um, you know, the government should, uh, you know, the government is like, well, what do you mean by the government? But anyway, not to rabbit trail too much, um, but uh, the obesity medicine, uh, I guess, clinician academic group is exploding. When I was board certified two and a half or three years ago, um, I believe there was only three or 4,000 total obesity medicine physicians. And now that number has doubled, even in just a couple of short years. Um, a lot of what I see as preventive medicine overlaps directly with that. Absolutely. I, th- I think so. I think all three of those specialties, preventive medicine, family medicine, and obesity medicine have a lot of overlap. I would say the main differences between preventive medicine and family medicine, family medicine is, uh, I think, a more rigorous clinical training. Preventive medicine it focuses on a lot of that, both pediatric and adult populations, um, and is a primary care specialty, but also incorporates a lot of population health and uh, rigorous statistical training um, that I don't think you necessarily get in a traditional family medicine um, training because you're so focused on just that clinical care. Um, and so I think that's probably the main difference between those two. Also with a, a bias towards prevention on the, on the preventive medicine side. Um, and then I think, and so obesity medicine is a subspecialty. So after you get a primary specialty in preventive medicine mm-hmm. or family medicine or internal medicine, yep. you can subspecialty, subspecialty in obesity medicine. And that gives you further training in, in how to treat obesity. I think treating, considering obesity as a disease is, is super important. I think there's been some hesitation in that for a while because obesity is not the the primary cause of death in anybody, but it's associated with many of the the leading causes of death. I think uh, in the CDC top 10 causes of death, uh, obesity is highly associated um, with incidents and worse outcomes. Um, So more likely to die from these diseases in like six or seven of those top 10 diseases. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really impactful. I guess, so I am not board certified in obesity medicine, uh, but where I did my, my training at Johns Hopkins, we, we staffed an obesity medicine clinic. Um, I guess I'm curious what getting the subspecialty in obesity medicine uh, provides you more so than just a, a primary specialty and feeling comfortable with prescribing those medications. Yeah, a specialty in obesity medicine is pretty similar to a specialty in family medicine. You get out of it what you put into it. Here's a hot take is, um, the, there's a concept known as a delta, and I think this is in several sports. I believe it's in rock climbing. So different people have a different delta within the same sport. So in the example of rock climbing, and I don't currently rock climb or boulder much right now, but I used to quite often, and a lot of my colleagues do. Um, it seems to be something that a lot of doctors actually share in common. Their love of rock climbing is very, very random. Um, not sure how close the correlation is, but anyway, different people have a different delta, a way of going about things. And the specific hot take is wide, like mile wide, inch deep, 
specialties that have a large scope of practice, a potentially very large scope of practice, like uh, obesity medicine, like family medicine, like preventive medicine, the potential to set a very high delta or a high starting weight, maybe our audience will appreciate like uh, weightlifting or powerlifting. <laughs> different people start at a different standard and do things a different way. They choose different grips. There's different ways of doing things. But in obesity medicine, the specialty itself is actually quite easy to get um, as long as you put into it just enough to get through the CME and pass the exam. There is obesity medicine programs as well, um, which are likely a very high quality. I haven't done a specific program itself, just the board certification, but you only get out of it what you put into it. This is pretty well known in family medicine um, where you have on average the least qualified and the lowest test scores going into that specialty, despite it being um, theoretically the highest amount of delta that you can put into it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Preventive medicine is kind of the same way. Um, I, could, I could see a lot of other preventive medicine physicians really focusing on the informatics and statistics side of things. And um, clinical medicine is like any other profession. If you don't use it or if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. Yeah, your skills atrophy. Yeah, for example, uh, where I did my training at Hopkins, it was very focused on on population health and and the clinical aspect of preventive medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and and my training was very focused on this obesity training. And where I'm practicing now at a, at a large health system in California, it's much more focused on the lifestyle medicine aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and so the training is is quite a bit different between those two. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering if I was a patient with obesity, should I seek out a physician with obesity certification, or do you think going to your primary care doctor would be sufficient? If it's uh, if you do no research into who to go to. It's kind of like thinking about, um, you know, should I go to a mechanic that specializes in carburetors or just a random mechanic? It's possible that the random mechanic can fix the carburetor, or I guess most cars have an EFI now, but um, you have a better likelihood of going to a mechanic that at least says something about carburetor in the website. Um, so there, there is physicians that do treat obesity well that are not board certified, but if that's available in your area, you might as well seek that out. I always tell people it's okay. It's not doctor shopping if you're reading different uh, biographies of doctors on their websites and you think he or she might be a good fit, he or she might be a terrible fit, and then trying a couple that would be a good fit and then finding whichever one is the best fit for you. That makes sense. And in discussing with my colleagues, I guess one thing I've noticed is that the um, ones who are more generalist, who aren't obesity certified, um, they can attack some of the kind of first line and second line treatments. Um, they're pretty familiar with the GLP-1 agonist uh, and maybe Contrave, um, but they're less familiar with some of the other more specific um, medications uh, like Phentermine uh, or Orlistat, and then certainly they don't feel comfortable prescribing off-label medications where it seems like the obesity medicine trained physicians uh, feel very comfortable prescribing uh, med uh, unique off-label off medications. Yeah. They're also less likely to work at an interdisciplinary clinic that mm -hmm. has a dietitian or a personal trainer, um, less likely to get uh, like a deep dive into their sleep um, in addition to their diet and exercise. So. 
Um, those are some pros and cons. Certainly the more severe the pathology, most all pathologies are on a continuum or a spectrum, the more it would be reasonable to seek out an expert in that area. That makes sense. And the majority of the, the high quality evidence that I've seen pairs medication with lifestyle changes. Yep. So you need a high quality multidisciplinary team uh, to improve your nutrition and your physical activity and your behavior, which are all three as important, maybe more important than that medication aspect. And usually in primary care, they might not have the resources or the time to provide that. You know, yeah, uh, that's a great point. We were discussing this yesterday, actually, that this might be a good uh, opportunity to discuss it. Um, the change in resting heart rate with GLP-1 receptor agonists and also with the placebo group in the very large studies on GLP-1 receptor agonists. I saw another Hopkins-trained physician post about this, Peter Atia, mm. and um, discussing the increase in resting heart rate if you're on different GLP-1 receptor agonists um, or combined GLP-1 GIPs. And oddly enough, the James dug into this, the placebo group, um, even though it is a number of thousands, had um, standard of care diet and exercise intervention. And yet their resting heart rate did not statistically significantly change over a period of 48 weeks, even though when you have monitored, so you know individuals are exercising, a lot of studies show a decrease in resting heart rate, let's say from uh, 75 to 65 of 10, even in a period of eight to 12 weeks. So that really makes you doubt the uh, validity of, or at least the success of the exercise program. I guess it at best, it tells you that if you tell people to diet and exercise, they probably won't. I think that's the, the part of the study that I found as a red flag in the, in the methodology is that they had told the patients to exercise 150 minutes per week, but had given them no explicit instructions on how to do that and what exactly that means and no monitoring and proof that they were actually doing that. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, there's a lot of evidence that increasing your physical activity does drop your resting heart rate, especially in the BMI categories that were included in these studies. Mm -hmm. um, so it is suspicious, those results. Mm -hmm. It's also concerning because if you think about the one of the main critiques of fast weight loss of any type, not necessarily fat loss, but they really go pretty closely hand in hand. If you lose weight, you're going to lose fat. If you lose fat, you're going to lose weight. Um, almost without exception, not quite. Um, but if you're talking about a large volume of weight, 100 pounds, you're concerned about the loss in lean body mass and exercise is going to be, and specifically resistance training and hormone optimization are going to be some of the most important things for that. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind when choosing like what specialty a physician to go to. Um, the more specialized the clinic, the more likely you are to have success with actually impl implementing the diet and exercise plan. Yeah, absolutely. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, perhaps uh, we can segue into talking about pharmaceutical benefits. Um, on the radio on the way over here, I heard, uh, this was at the local rock station, so I was listening to a little, little rock on the way into the podcast today, and the radio host, the radio DJ said, um, there was a new study out, um, it didn't say who it was by, would have been nice. I'd be curious, yeah. But they said, one of the main causes of the, so they attributed the increasing cost of healthcare in the United States to what's called pharmaceutical benefits managers. And I know that there's a, there's a whole bunch of wheeling and dealing, so I thought, what better person to ask than you? What's the deal with these pharmaceutical benefit managers? Are they finding patients the best drugs? Are they middlemen between insurance companies and big pharma? Are they uh, evil gremlins that are stealing all of the profit? <laughs> Maybe a mix of uh, all three of those. So the pharmaceutical benefit managers, uh, I'll call them PBMs for short because it's kind of a, a word salad there. Um, yeah. They fit in between the insurance plans uh, and the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmacies. And they kind of help provide the formulary for those insurance plans. So when you're a patient and you have uh, a commercial insurance plan, which is the majority of patients in the United States, um, you, you pay that plan a, a monthly premium um, for your health insurance. Those health insurance companies kind of outsource building the formulary. So what medications their patients can get prescribed to them to these PBMs. So they are the ones that, that build out that formulary for the insurance plans. So they reach out to the pharmacies and uh, discuss with the pharmacies what they're gonna have stocked for that insurance plan. They also set up with the pharmaceutical companies to help lobby to get the, the medications on the, the plans for the insurance companies. Mm. The insurance companies really drive healthcare and what can be provided in these traditional health systems. Mm. Not at Gillette Health, we have a much different model here, but in uh, the academic institution I work at, it's really the insurance companies that dictate that. And so the PBMs, they get rebates for every single medication that is purchased from both the pharmacy and the pharmaceutical company. So they are highly incentivized to add on different medications to these uh, formularies based on the amount of rebate that they're getting. And so that certainly drives up cost. Instead of giving that back to the patient, it's going to this middleman group, uh, the PBMs. You know, another complication with this is when your doctor goes to prescribe you a medication, they might not know what medication is on your formulary. So I might prescribe mm -hmm. you resubistatin, but if that's not on the formulary, you're gonna have to pay out of pocket for that. And there's a bunch of different insurance companies and uh, insurance models that come into a health system. And so unless the physician is really familiar with those, they might not know uh, what is on the formulary. So I've worked to build tools to kind of help you identify which medications are on the formulary and suggest that to the physician so they can provide the lowest cost care to their patient. But these PBMs kind of uh, obscure what exactly is going to be covered on the formularies. So it makes this process very, very difficult. So there is some argument that they can decrease the cost for the patient in the long run because they're working with the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmacies to get a lower cost medication. 
but there's also good evidence that they drive up costs overall and do not share the cost savings to the patient and instead take that, take that cost savings to themselves. Hmm. Interesting. So if you have commercial insurance, it might not be your doctor that's deciding what medication to put you on. It might be a combination of the insurance company and the PBM. Correct. Your, your doctor would identify which type of medication you should be on and, and the class of medication. And then really which medication is going to be able to be given first is going to be dependent on that insurance company. Kind of going back to these GLP-1 agonists, I cannot usually cannot prescribe these as first line uh, mm -hmm. two patients. I have to try uh, different medications first and that I have to document that, that it failed or the patient did not tolerate it. And I have to try another medication mm -hmm. and document that they didn't try it. And of course, lifestyle uh, interventions first. And then after all three of those have failed, then I can prescribe the GLP-1 agonist. And that's purely dictated by the insurance company, which is dictated by what the PBM uh, decided. So it's like healthcare mafia. That's kind of what it seems like from my perspective. It makes me so angry. I remember one instance of a, a patient, um, you know, uh, and this is partly where the social determinants of health come into play. A patient who did not have excess income to spend on medication prescribed Resuvastatin for the record. And we've done podcasts on this before. One of my more favorite statins and um, went to the pharmacy. It was not on his plan, but, uh, you know, wanted to be a good patient. And now I try to tell patients, by the way, if it's more than 30 or $40 a month, regardless of what it is, do not pick it up. Do not buy it at the pharmacy. The pharmacy will be okay. Even if they fill the medicine, don't even pick up one month. Um, call the doctor's office, message the doctor's office, text our office. Patients text us, patients email us. Um, they can text our main number and we will look into it and we will take care of it. Because it's just, it just makes me so mad if a, when a patient picks up a medication like that that's generic for $150 a month when it's just because probably their PBM happens to get a slightly higher rebate for, let's say, a Torvastatin instead of a Suvastatin. So what is the deal with these rebates? Is that just where each supplier of the medication pays that bribe or rebate to the PBM? Yeah, it goes directly to the PBM. Um, so if the medication costs $100, it might be a, a $10 repeat. So every single medication that is bought, the, the PBM is getting that money. So they're incentivized, they're financially incentivized to decide on the formulary based on what medication is going to provide the highest rebate. Hmm. And, and one thing what you were saying earlier about encouraging patients to reach out to their physician if uh, the yep. cost is too high, the physicians have very little insight into the, the end user cost of the medication. Yep. There's oftentimes when I prescribe a medication, like you're saying, that's generic, and I'm expecting it to be dollars or uh, maybe cents, um, and it is for some insurance plans, but it ends up being an exorbitant amount of cost to the patient. Um, and that's, I think, one hopeful improvement we can make over the next decade is really giving physicians the insight into the overall cost that the patient's going to have to pay for uh, before they prescribe. Because I don't think there are really any clinicians who want to prescribe high cost medications mm -hmm. when there's a lower cost alternative. Yep. We want to provide care that patients are going to be able to afford and access. That's kind of one of the more 
frustrating things is prescribing medications and then the patient um, not taking those medications. And mm -hmm. if it's due to cost, that is on our fault for prescribing something that isn't within their uh, their price range. So yeah, yeah. Even when I've spent time digging through various like Blue Cross Blue Shields formulary, then the employer will have a plan exclusion just for this certain class of meds. And there's literally no way to look that up. So uh, another example, and um, I'll just call it how it is, is some people have heard on a podcast that one GLP-1 is better than another GLP-1. And they say someone, whether it's me or another one, and obviously it's not better or worse. Everything is situational, individualized. But um, they will go out and buy for cash, you know, more than $1,000 a month for a month or two, even before they see me. And then by the time they get to clinic, they've already spent, you know, $4,000 on this medication because they think it maybe it would be better for them where there could be a perfectly fine alternative that happens to be covered on their plan. It just happens to be from the competing pharmaceutical company. Yeah, I think that's why discussing with your physician and getting really specific individualized uh, recommendations for you and your priorities and your price range and, and everything like that is really mm -hmm. important. So I guess we briefly discussed uh, resuvastatin and atorvastatin. We discussed how some people, even though they're both generics and they've both been statins for a long time, one's lipophilic, one's hydrophilic. Um, sometimes they're called a lipophilic and non-lipophilic. But um, some people have been messaging me about uh, David Sinclair's recent tweet. We actually uh, talked about this on the After Hours podcast of all podcasts. We try to do entertainment, but we went into, into this. Um, so we'll link that either above or in the description for people that are curious. But um, as a non-clinician, non-scientist, um, for people that are listening to this, how do you read a tweet like that that um, I... I'll just, it like, I think it's somewhat alarmist. Um, specifically calling out something like resuvastatin as being more concerning for dementia or whatnot. How do you interpret that? So I interpret that as, as it is, a single study that is showing uh, one result and there are limitations and biases to every single study. Um, and so it needs to be taken with, with a grain of salt and compared to the majority of evidence that, that exists out there. Um, that study specifically was really interesting that that was the conclusion that he came to because it actually mentioned three different studies and in two of the studies um, there was no difference and then he chose to discuss the one study that that there was a difference mm -hmm. and then on top of that uh i think it was a three-part tweet and the two subtweets were unrelated to that study and they were meta-analyses that looked at mm -hmm. uh the overall all the studies that are looking at this and uh, develop and weight those based on um, how good the evidence is and how much bias there is, and then comes up with a single point to look at um, the statistical significance of that. And those studies, so uh, compared all statins with dementia risk and yeah. Alzheimer's risk. Yeah. So that, that is how I interpret a study. I would look at that one study, but then the next step I would go is I would search for meta-analyses. If not that, I would look at systematic reviews. If not that, I look at pooled analysis. And so all three of those things are looking at the majority of the studies out there that exists mm -hmm. um, and the general direction of where it's pointing. And you, we oftentimes update our, the medical literature. We think one thing and we learn something new and it, it changes our mind. Mm -hmm. But usually the, where the, the direction that the majority of studies are pointing, that does not flip back and forth. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the studies are showing that 
the statins decrease the risk of Alzheimer's uh, and general dementia. Um, and so that's kind of where I would lay the most of my confidence. Yeah. Another thing to think about is uh, observer bias. So if you're looking at the lifetime incidence of something like neurodegenerative disease, and some studies do um, account for these confounding variables, at least to the best of their ability. But if in the case of something like a metformin or a statin or even a GLP-1, uh, let's say it's a diabetic patient, and let's say if they didn't start one of these medications, uh, again, back to that all-cause mortality, maybe they would live one year longer, an average of 80 years to 81 years. So the incidence of neurodegenerative disease in those individuals between age 80 and 81, you would find that in one group, but not in the other group. Yeah. And, and I think we're throwing around some terms here. So just to kind of point out some, some key words here so everybody is understanding. Confounding is when um, there's an association between a, uh, a predictor and an outcome, but there's another predictor that also could be involved. So I like to think, or what I learned in medical school is there's an association between having a, a lighter in your pocket and lung cancer. Um, but there's no biological link between those things. But having a lighter in your pocket is associated with smoking, and that is associated with lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And so that is a confounder. And so in every single study, there is going to be confounding predictor variables that you need to account for. And mm -hmm. some of those you can account for and adjust for, and some of those you just can't account for. Mm -hmm. So usually, if the if the authors are good, they'll include that in the discussion as a uh, as a limitation, mm -hmm. uh, but not all the time. Mm -hmm. And then we're talking about bias a lot as well. And bias is a word that is used um, colloquially a lot, but in medical literature has a very specific definition. Mm -hmm. It's changing the, um, the sample population. So the population that you're using for the study and how that is different than the overall population. So you might have a selection bias where the people that are included in your study uh, chose to be in that study and therefore might be a little more health conscious than the, than the general population. And so that's a bias that changes the outcome and how it can be applied to the general population. One fun example of selection bias is studies that administer 500 milligrams of testosterone cypionate per week to healthy male volunteers in their 20s. So uh, uh, you will certainly have a selection bias of healthy males in their 20s that are willing to have 500 milligrams a week of testosterone administered. Um, perhaps slightly less healthy males in the 20s that would be assigned to a group of placebo, 50 milligrams a week, 100 milligrams a week, or 500 milligrams a week. But I thought that's a fun example. Another example of uh, you know correlation versus causation uh, and as far as like confounding variable is polygenic risk scores. So in, in general, I'm not a fan of polygenic risk scores. Eventually they'll, you know, they will inevitably get better and better. Definitely. But, uh, and I think James has talked about this a lot as well. So I won't totally steal his thunder. But one interesting one that I've seen in one of the reports is, are, in what percentile are you for your genetics, for your average age of first sexual intercourse? So you think, well, what does that have to do with genetics? Isn't that mostly nurture and not nature? So is that related to, um, you know, how you look? If I guess if you're generally more genetically attractive or inattractive, or um, perhaps, uh, and this is one that is likely more than just um, correlation, um, age of puberty. So like age of sexual development would hopefully be somewhat related to age of first sexual intercourse as well. So I thought that was a particularly odd example of 
something to look at in genetics? Yeah, I think we need to be really careful um, with some of the terms we use in precision medicine. This is a big uh, field that is developing and that has really exciting um, future in the, in the next few decades mm -hmm. as, we, uh, as our genetics uh, improves and our screening improves. Um, but this idea of percentile and where you are, I think, needs to be uh, really taken with a grain of salt. This is a statistical uh, measurement of where you are compared to the normal population. And this assumes a, a normal distribution, a normal bell curve, uh, which certainly is, is not the case for every single disease. There might be right skew, which means there's a lot more people on the upper end. Um, and so that kind of 1% uh, is really extreme compared to the, the median uh, compared to a normal distribution, which it might be closer. So there are some big limitations uh, with these and we need to be, that's why it needs to come in conjunction with, with counseling with your physician. Yeah. On the tier list of functional medicine or precision medicine interventions and diagnostics, these would probably be C tier or F tier. That's, we should put together a tier, like an actual tier list. That yeah, would be that'd fun. be really helpful. That you would know. be fun. So functional medicine is supposed to be root cause medicine uh, to describe it. So things like LP little a or ApoB, those would certainly be A tier or is it an S tier? That's the highest. Oh strong. yeah, S tier is the top. Yeah, so <laughs> S tier at the top would be LP little a, ApoB. Perhaps at the bottom, and even if it's a F tier at the bottom, it doesn't mean it's worthless. But you have to put in things like uh, SNP testing outside of your high yield SNPs, like nutrigenomics, or uh, maybe even organic acid tests, just because some people get them on literally everybody. Maybe C tier, a bit higher. Um, you know, cookie cutter stool microbiome mapping tests, just like for literally everybody. Um, and I've done other podcasts before as well. I did the Genova podcast and. Stool microbiome mapping is helpful, but one of the analogies I make is it's like testing the exhaust that comes out of your car. It tells you a decent amount about your engine function and like what fuel you're putting into it and what's actually in the in the chamber, but a bit less. Um, yeah, uh, maybe we'll do a separate thing just on the tier list of precision medicine and functional medicine interventions. I think that'd be great. I think that'd be a lot of fun and provide uh, uh, some good value. I think that's also a good reason why there's some kind of resource guarding and, and can be interpreted as gatekeeping in medicine, uh, where you as a patient are not able to just go and get any sort of testing that you want. A lot of it needs to be prescribed by a physician um, because if you just do all those and, and don't have it tiered and, and don't understand uh, kind of the pathophysiology behind those those tests, um, then you could get an F tier test and think it has the same validity as a as an S tier test. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly not the case. And so that's why uh, it's important to discuss this with an, someone with a good amount of experience and understanding that kind of help you differentiate those and what they mean and how they can be interpreted. So should I or shouldn't I go get my full body MRI without the supervision of any physician to see every tiny little calcification or potential tumor or cyst that's in my lung and liver and colon. You should not. <laughs> you will find incidental findings and you will get stuck in the medical system. You'll be biopsying all these things. Um, and there's probably not much of an impact, uh, a benefit to you. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing coming to mind is thyroid nodules. How many yep. thyroid nodules do we find that are uh, incidental findings? Um, and they cause a lot of fear. Um, they cause unnecessary testing. Uh, and that's, a, mm -hmm. of course, associated with increased uh, cost, yep. as well as uh, some complications, which could yep. end you up with a, a serious complication later, a serious problem later mm -hmm. on um, that you didn't even need in the first place. And this is where the balanced approach to health comes into play because 
we are a fan of full body MRI testing. In fact, there's a, a company called Prenuvo that we order on many patients after, and also that we specifically don't order in some patients after a rigorous process of shared decision-making and good physician-patient rapport and understanding that yes, um, and this is the way I see it. This is kind of like my elevator pitch for it. Expect to do multiple because you will find those calcifications from a respiratory infection you had or from the trekking that you did in Nepal a long time ago. You will probably have some hepatic cysts and whatnot um, from when you had uh, you know, intamoeba or whatever other weird diseases you may have picked up. But you won't really know if that's truly due to that until you get your follow-up scan in a year or two years or whatever the recommended interval is. And then um, in between all of that time, uh, maybe you call it health anxiety, um, it is not a zero harm test, but it can certainly hugely benefit some people who are able to get it with proper supervision. Absolutely. And, and that's a great example of something it's going to be really hard to convince your provider to give you in a normal traditional health system. Mm -hmm. And why I'm really enjoying working at Gillette Health and I think I can provide very high quality care uh, for my patients is because we have the ability to, to do these things and trend them over time. I think that's a pretty good summary. Uh, it always kind of seems to come back to a balanced approach and individualized and talking with the patient about their goals. So regardless of if it's on the preventive medicine scope or on the health optimization scope, um, it kind of converges to that. I think so, yes. A lot of overlap. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm sure that we will do many podcasts together in the future. As always, thank you for your time and may God bless you with health and happiness. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.